Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church on Palm Sunday. Now, we already had a little bit of an introduction to Palm Sunday, right? It's the Sunday before Easter. It's a Sunday where we remember the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was a sign that he was the king. And, and people waved palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna. It was an amazing uh, experience for the people there. And it went down in history as a real symbol a real declaration that Jesus was the king. But Palm Sunday is also famous for what Jesus ended up doing after he arrived in the city. Because see, Jesus, when he got down off the donkey, he looked around at the religious activity that was happening, and he was not happy with what he saw. And what he did next was so different from what we often expect from Jesus, or people often think about Jesus, that it leaves us a little shocked. Seeing the abusive practices of the religious establishment, Jesus made a whip and he got busy. Driving out animal sellers, money changers, clearing the courts, flipping tables, shouting orders, just kind of wrecking the whole worship activity. The whole worship service was just ruined by Jesus. Get that image into your head. Created chaos, shut down the whole sacrificial system. Everything was a mess. People were upset because Jesus, the judge, had arrived. And the image of Jesus here, uh, it really stands out because it can kind of make us feel uncomfortable for for one of, of two reasons. Some of us might be uncomfortable with this image of a judging Jesus, you know, flailing a whip, either because we've always thought of Jesus as kind of mellow and soft, non-confrontational, you know, everything was sort of sweetness and rainbows. That's the image we've had of Jesus. Or we carried an image, maybe from our childhood, maybe we were in a really, really religious family, whatever. We carried an image that God was this judgmental, harsh, exacting figure. And so that when Jesus acts this way, it kind of jars us because it reminds us of that image that we've worked hard to get away from. You can see an image like this and think either it's kind of a, a weak Jesus and that shocks us or, or a wicked God. Any, any hint of judgment or opposition or anger or wrath from Jesus can, can make at least some of us feel kind of uncomfortable. And yet, his actions here, not the temple, how he acted toward religion, revealed something about Jesus, didn't it? What he cares about. What really mattered. And, and when we get down to it, when we really explore what's going on here on this Palm Sunday, we find that this Jesus who's judging, this Jesus who's driving animals out, this Jesus who's making a big scene, is actually more loving, more caring, more gracious, more merciful, more holy than you and I could ever imagine. And that's what we discover today in The passage we're going to explore in the book of Revelation. We've been traveling through Revelation for a long time now. We are getting toward the end. But I've got to warn you. Today's passage is not fun. It's one of those passages that I would willingly skip over if I were choosing what to preach. Well, I did make a choice a while back, didn't I? But you know what I'm saying? One of the commitments to preaching through the scripture means that guys like me can't avoid passages like this. Duly warned. We're going to dive into Revelation 15 and 16. And it's difficult to take because it pictures God judging. And yet, 
punctuated through this judgment vision, God is praised for his judgments. God is worshipped for how he responds particularly to evil. How does that work? That's what we're going to figure out today. How can we praise God for his judgments too? What does that even mean for us? Well, let's hear this vision unfold. It's a long passage. I do respect, I really do. Those of you who are visiting here today for the first time have not been traveling with us. There's been so much development. And I just want to ask if you hear something this morning, you think, what is that? What did I drop myself into? What did I step in? Going to the Erickson Covenant Church this morning. I'm asking you, please, there's, you've kind of been dropped into a larger story and, and, and there's, there's lots going on. And, and so, you know, I encourage you, if you're into it, I, I talked to someone today who doesn't go to this church and has just been exploring things and, and uh, she's been binge listening to these Revelation uh, uh, messages and uh, quite enjoying it. And, and I, others of you might need to do the same uh, to, to catch up because you are being dropped right into a pretty awful vision. There's my warning. I'll stop now. I'm going to read through these whole two chapters. They're on an insert in your bulletin. Some of you have Bibles. There might be a Bible in the front of your bench, or you can even uh, read it on your, on your phone as well. Here it is. I'm going to try to keep myself from making any comments while I read it. But as I read it, listen to the ways that God is praised for his judgments. It's, it'll be key to understand how do we apply this to our lives. Here it is, chapter 15. I saw in heaven... Another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with seven, the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who've been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are worthy. Sorry, misread that. You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly, festering sores broke out in the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl in the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, 
Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to, to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl in the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Wow. Don't you wish you were me right now? Isn't that a terrible passage? Isn't that horrible stuff? I mean, how can we make some headway on this? What does this mean for us? How are you going to walk home today with some measure of encouragement after today? I'm I'm kind of wondering that too. Listen, the critical thing we need to hear changes everything you hear in this passage. The critical thing you need to hear is this whole passage is about God delivering his people from their enemies. That's critical to the whole passage. This is a passage about deliverance. Remember who's getting this letter. Groups of Christians around these cities, in these churches, in the ancient Roman province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey. And they were addressed. We know that. We know it's a bit of what's going on in each of those individual churches. These Christians are facing an increase in persecution, particularly from Rome, and particularly from a cult, uh, a religious group that has popped up everywhere they live that's pressuring them to worship Caesar. And that pressure is being poured on, and they're being challenged every day to compromise their allegiance to Jesus. They're the ones receiving this letter, saying, don't compromise, stay true, follow Jesus, overcome In the book of Revelation, we've talked about it being an apocalypse where Jesus pulls back the curtain to reveal that he is present to show them what is really going on, to show them who their true enemy is, to show them that behind all the things that are happening to them, behind the pressure they're getting from maybe in their, their, their work group, behind the pressure they're feeling from their families, behind the pressure they're getting from the general society that says, we all got to worship Caesar if we want to survive. 
All the pressure they're experiencing overt or, or in subtle ways, all of that, behind all of it, stands what is depicted in Revelation, the dragon, the devil himself, who's waging war on God's people. And he's using every uh, thing at his disposal, but particularly these twin beasts that have been mentioned which is representing the Roman emperor and this worship cult that I just mentioned. And in this vision, what God shows is that he is going to come and judge the enemies of the people of God and bring about their deliverance. And to do that, he uses the ancient story, the biggest story in the Old Testament, the ancient story of how God delivered his people out of Egypt through a series of fantastic plagues. Remember that? Some of you are fairly familiar with the Bible. Some of you are newer to it, but this is a a pretty important story. That's why there's a bunch of allusions and references to the Exodus in this story and actually in the larger letter of Revelation. Did you see any of them? Perhaps the most obvious one is the fact that these are the seven what? Plagues. They're called plagues, and they play out actually in very similar ways to the plagues that God poured out on Egypt when they were oppressing the Israelites and refusing to let them go. Sores, water into blood, sun gone crazy, darkness, agony, even frogs. And you can read more about that if you're interested, if, if this is news to you. You can read more about that in the first uh, you know, quarter of the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. It's a great story, and it's one of the greatest Old Testament stories. and kind of sits in the background of so much that happens after that. But this is the key thing to remember. God used plagues to bring about the deliverance of his people. Crazy, hair-raising stuff, all designed to crush Egypt's gods and liberate God's people. But in that, God was using the plagues to bring judgment on the Egyptian oppressors. They had enslaved his people. They had committed genocide, killing babies, killing male babies to try to stop the race from growing, robbing them of hope, crushing them. This Exodus theme makes uh, sense of something else we see in this, in this story. Right at the start of chapter 15, God's people are depicted victoriously standing on a seashore. Glowing with fire indicates some judgment there, but they're singing the song of who? They're singing the song of God's servant, Moses, and of the Lamb. And Moses is intentionally brought up here, the song of Moses. It's a direct connection to the victory song that God's people sang. Remember remember the story? They're coming out of Egypt. They finally have been let go. After all the plagues, 12 in that case, have been, you know, wrecking Egypt. They stand before the great Red Sea, and the Egyptian army comes up behind them. God acts powerfully. The Red Sea is split, and God's people walk through the Red Sea. But as they're walking across, the Egyptian army closes in behind them. Then they climb out of the trench, as it were. They get up on the bank, and after God's people are all up on the opposing bank, God causes the Red Sea to crash in, and the Egyptian army is destroyed. And then what happens? Exodus 15 is all a big, long song of victory. The song of Moses, where God's people, standing on the shore, sang of God's victory over their enemies to bring them out, to deliver them, to judge the oppressor, and to bring them freedom. This is the kind of illusions that are happening throughout this story. What's all this saying? This vision of future judgment, the visions we see here, is a vision of new exodus. That God is going to tell this story again. That God is going to enact 
This kind of deliverance, again, where God is now depicting deliverance from their enemies through sort of an Egyptian style, as it were. That's how it's being depicted, judgment plagues. Remember, these are people who are being oppressed by Rome. They're being crushed. They're they're, they're losing jobs. They're dying. And what we know is that the persecution was just getting going when this letter was delivered. And so now they're being helped to see that, yes, we're being crushed. Yes, we're being killed. Our own kids are being killed. Yes, we're facing immense pressure to compromise. But God has promised that he will come and deliver. He will come and judge. And they hear this story and they see this vision and know that God is saying, look, I have seen what's happening to you. I will not ignore it. I will act. So they hear in this God's promise to bring powerful deliverance, rescuing his people from under the bloody clutches of an oppressive regime. And that's critical. It's critical that we hear it in light of this deliverance because then it affects then how we understand the judgments and how we even praise God in the midst of that. Well, with this new Exodus deliverance in mind, Let's see how God is praised in these judgments. Just a couple things I want to highlight. As you understand with this much going on, I had to pick a few things, I hope the high points for us to focus on today. First, God is praised because his judgments are just. This is probably the biggest emphasis that we hear in this, this punctuated, these punctuated praises that are given to God throughout this judgment scene. A few verses. 15.3 says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. In 16.5 and 6 we read, You are just in these judgments. And this comes right out after we've already seen some judgments poured out. Then we hear, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And then just the next verse. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is the main sort of emphasis of the praise that's given, or the sort of what's said about these judgments in these pastors. They are just. Why? As we've seen throughout the Revelation, and we see it throughout Scripture, God warns and warns and warns far longer than you and I would ever warn and warn and warn someone. Gives opportunity after opportunity for people to turn around for people to receive grace, for people to stop being so harsh with other people, to stop oppressing. God warns and warns and warns so that when judgment does finally fall, God is completely just in his actions. No one can say, oh, I didn't know. Oh, you didn't tell me that. God is just in his actions. The seven trumpets, we've seen this depicted in Revelation. Back in chapters 8 and 9, There was a series of seven trumpets. They're really mirror images of of these uh, seven plagues. They're they're really connected. I think they're probably repeating the same thing. But they see we see them depicted as partial judgment. And they're given, we explored how they're given as gracious warnings. Helping people turn around, see what see what direction they're heading, see where it's gonna land them up, and, and God is saying, Don't do that. And yet we saw in chapters eight and nine that these judgments, these warnings, didn't have the effect that God had wanted. It didn't produce heart change, just as they don't in this passage either. The only thing we saw 
coming out of really chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Revelation, the only thing that produces heart change or at least provides the opportunity for heart change is when Christians sacrifice themselves in witness. The only way heart change happens is through the sacrificial, vibrant, lay-your-life-down kind of witness that the church gives, that Christians give. You might want to go back and listen to that if that's news to you. But here in chapter 16, these judgments are total. It's not a third. It's not a quarter. It's total. This is God acting in just judgment upon an enemy that refused and refused and refused to stop abusing people, to stop harming God's world, to stop worshiping false gods, particularly Rome and all that's going on there. God is just in his judgments because he gave more opportunities to change than anyone could have ever imagined or asked for. God's just in his judgments because he's motivated, even in his judgments, he's motivated by his love for people. These are people that are being systematically destroyed. And he won't allow it to continue. God's just in his judgments because he's giving back what's been given out with the punishment matching the crime. God's just in his judgments because he holds people. He holds tyrants and kings and cultures and kingdoms and ethnic groups. He holds each one of us responsible for our actions, honoring the free will that he's given to us. The judgment pictured here depicts future judgment, both from their perspective and probably maybe ultimate judgment. But I believe it also happens through history. Rome did eventually fall. But the point of this vision, as these Christians hear it, is to give confidence to them, confidence to God's people who are right in the middle of being crushed by their enemy. What happens here and what's depicted here is really the ultimate answer to something we already heard much, much earlier in the Revelation. There's a a series of sevens, right? There's seven seals broken, then there's seven trumpets, and now we have seven plagues, okay? Back in the seven seals that were broken, there was a fifth seal that was broken. And when that seal was broken, there was a, a vision of people who'd been slaughtered already, who'd been martyred. And, and they're crying out from under the altar saying, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That's the cry. This is the answer, the ultimate answer that's given to that prayer. God is saying, I'm answering that prayer right now. Well, what does that mean for suffering Christians? What does that mean for us? It means this. As we consider God's judgment, whether it works out through history, whether it's in the future, we can be sure of this. It will come, and it will be just. We might, people might be suffering now. You might be suffering now. We might not be sure of the whole story. We might not understand what's going on. We might feel that there's times where God is ignoring our plight, or God is not seeing what's going on in the world, or there's things going on. We wonder, does, does God even realize? There might be times where we feel on the opposite side of that. We feel like, how could God be so harsh? Like, what's going on? Doesn't he realize But what we realize when we see this vision, when we know the heart of God, we see that when it does come, when God does finally judge, it will be because it really is finally time. That he has extended mercy. He has extended opportunity. He's he's given grace over and over and over again. He's sent warnings. He's sent witness. He's sent his people. He's sent his church so that when judgment falls, he is perfectly and completely just in his judgments. 
So God is praised for that. He's praised for the fact that he is just in his judgments. There's no question of his justice. What else is he praised for? He's praised for being holy. Did you hear that? 15.4 Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. And then in 16.5 You are just in these judgments, Lord. You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who are. Now, it's very easy for us. When we think of God bringing judgment, I mean, that just conjures up so many things in our lives, in our culture, in our minds, in our hearts. I get it. But it's so easy for us to suddenly begin to evaluate God's actions, evaluate his ways and his decisions from our perspective, from our very limited, very flawed perspective. We might begin to think, you know what, I think I have a better understanding of what's going on here than God does. I, I think I'm more equipped to evaluate what others are doing, good or bad. We might even be bold enough to pass judgment on what God does. Sometimes we think God waits way too long. I've heard some of you. You've got to be kidding me, God. Crush that sucker. Right? Why are you giving him a second chance? Or her? Or that people? I don't want, to, I don't want them to continue. Take them out, God. Others, we might think, oh, come on, that's too harsh. He was a nice guy most of the time, or whatever. But at the very foundation of God's nature is the fact that he is holy. Holy means that God is set apart. He's, he's different than us. He's holy other. He's immensely bigger. He's infinitely wiser. He's far more loving, far more caring more honest, more true, more gracious, more merciful, that he operates at an eternal perspective that reaches to the infinite past and into the infinite future, that God is holy. And we recognize his holiness and that recognition of God's holiness, that he is something so far superior and greater and other than us is foundational, actually, actually, to our relationship with him. You know, it was way back in the garden that humans decided that they were equipped enough They were wise enough, they were smart enough, they were God enough to evaluate and judge God's actions. To decide for themselves. They were wrong, and we've been living out the ramifications of their pride and their mistrust ever since. Coming to God in humility means that we recognize that He is God, and we are not And it's kind of the foundation. That's why when we talk about coming to follow Jesus, kind of that first step in as we come to follow Jesus, saying, okay, Jesus, you can lead my life. I'm not going to be the boss anymore. I'm going to stop trying to lead my direction. I'm going to go your direction. And that action of saying, I'm going to stop walking my direction. I'm going to go your direction. That's what the Bible calls repentance, where we turn around. And we follow after Jesus because we say, Jesus, you are going to lead my life. You are the Lord. You are the master. I submit my life to you. We recognize that God is holy and we created in the image of God, but we're human. That his ways are higher than our ways. That his love is stronger than our love. That his patience is certainly more long-suffering than our patience. That his grace is greater than our grace every single time. That's what we recognize when we see the holiness of God. That there's just nothing about him 
And that comes close to, you know, how puny or little we are. He's so much better and greater and amazing. That's recognizing his holiness. And so we praise him for it. We praise him for his holiness, knowing that when he brings judgment, not only is his judgment an expression of his justice, it's an expression of his holiness that he actually really understands what's going on. He understands what can happen and what can't happen. That he knows what is truly and effectively right and that his judgment, when it's given, will be the most holy, most pure, most gracious, most merciful, most amazing thing coming from God, the one who is holy. Well, it kind of puts us in our place, I'll admit. Because there are times we have to sort of set ourselves back and say, who am I to judge God? Who am I to question his character? Who are we to call him out when we think he's wrong? And I don't mean the kind of thing that says, God, I need to understand this. I'm trying to grapple with I mean the kind of shake your fist, God, we don't think you're right. Who are we to do that? The holiness of his judgments are evidenced in this passage. We even saw here, we see it throughout the Revelation. Remember back in the story of Exodus, as God poured out his judgments on Egypt, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, hardened his heart. And he wouldn't let these change him. He refused to bow, refused to change the way he was destroying people, refused to go along with what God wanted. He could have, but he didn't. And here in this passage, the followers of the beast who are getting all these plagues refuse to repent, refuse to accept God's invitation. They have given themselves, as we see, completely over in their worship of the beast, and they have themselves become less than human, like the beast, bloodthirsty and vicious and wrong. Their persistent persecution of God's people couldn't last, and so God promises judgment, just judgment from a holy God. Okay, so that's the passage. How does that work for us? Where do we go with this? Where are you going to go with this today? Well, believe it or not, I know this may come as a shock to you, believe it or not, but this awful accounting of God's judgments is an awesome call to worship. First of all, we see in this that God is actually worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our praise. That He is God. That we are not. That we begin to see, even in these judgments, God's character, God's love, God's passion for people, God's resistance to, to evil. And we be, as, we, as we explore that, we begin to see why God would be doing what He does, why He would eventually bring judgment. We realize, God, You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. We don't understand always what's going on, but you know what? You are worthy of praise because of who you are. And that's why we gather as Christians on a regular basis. We don't just come and sing songs because we like music. Although we do like music. We come because we recognize that gathering together as God's people to give praise to God for who he is is foundational to who we are. And he is worthy of it. He's worthy of our gifts. He's worthy of our talents. He's worthy of us just offering our our songs and our hearts and our lives, lifting our arms, just saying, God, you are worthy of our praise because you are amazing. And we can see that right here. We also realize that God is worthy of our trust. 
This might be a big one for some of us because we read a passage like this and we think, oh my goodness, all the most awful things I've ever thought or carried about God have just been proved in this terrible passage. But I believe that if we will hear it in the context of Revelation, if we hear it in the context of what he's doing, if we understand how this is God delivering his people out from under hate-filled, vicious, awful evil, we begin to realize, you know what? I may not see things clearly. I may not understand what's going on, but God, you are worthy of our trust. We can really trust you. That when you act, it's so right. That when you finally bring judgment, it's because there was nothing else that could be done. That you have done everything because you are so loving and so caring that at the end of the day or at the end of my life or at the end of the world, as it were, that God, whatever you do, you're worthy of our trust. We can trust you and know that we'll just be totally amazed with how right and how good and how gracious and how amazing everything you've done makes sense. So he's worthy of our trust. And that applies directly to our lives because there's times in our lives where we don't know what's going on, right? We aren't sure if God really has a handle on things. We aren't sure if he's going to be able to work this situation out. We're not sure if he really understands what's happening in my life or in my family or my workplace. And I'm telling you that this shows us that he is worthy of our trust. He will not let us down. Yes, bad things might happen. The people of God in the time Revelation was given continued to be crushed. It's true. This is not a promise that everything works out okay. No, it doesn't. Not in the short term. Bad things can happen. What it does tell us is that God, who's worthy of our trust, has promised to bring us through in little ways and in big ways, in the most ultimate way of all, which we celebrate next week, the resurrection itself. He is worthy of our trust. Well, the third thing I reflected on is that he's worthy of our lives. It, of course, goes along with that. What we see here is really a picture, an awful picture of what life without God really looks like, where it takes us. And this isn't what God wanted. God didn't want anyone to receive judgment. He wanted people to receive life. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. We looked at that last week. Jesus came and, and there was a bloodbath. Jesus' own blood shed. Why? So that people could, could get all that God wanted, could receive all the life that he had desired for them. God longs for people to receive life. And we've heard this over and over again through the Revelation. You hear it through all of Scripture that God has done everything possible and more so that people can turn and receive life. But at a certain point, people really do have to choose. They really do have to say yes. They can't just keep giving God the finger and moving on. It doesn't work that way. At a certain point, God says, that's it. I'm not going to force myself on you. You can go your own way. God is worthy of all of it. He's worthy of our praise, worthy of our trust, worthy of our lives. And here's what happens when we praise God and we trust Him with our lives. As we praise God for who He is, we become more like Him. This is a principle that we actually see through Scripture. And I highlighted a few times different places, but it's a principle we see. Uh, in Psalm 115, there's a, there's a verse that says that we become like the gods we worship. I think it's on the screen if you go to the next couple slides there, Jack. Yep, there it is. We become like the gods we worship. This is highlighting idolatry and what happens. But the principle is there. That as people created in the image of God, we become like the God we worship. If we worship the God who's made us, we become more like him. More like we were meant to look. 
But if we change our allegiances and begin to worship other things, ourselves, money, sex, career, some God that's made that's an idea or even, you know, kicking it old school with actual gold and silver, whatever, that we become like the God we worship. Worshippers of the beast become more beastly. Worshippers of God become more godly. As we praise God for who he is, we become more like him. What he does, what he loves, the things God hates, the things he judges, the things he's concerned about, the things he's passionate about, all of that, as we worship him, it begins to shape our heart and shape our minds and shape our actions. All through this passage, as God judges, his heart is revealed. And as we worship him, his heart shapes ours. See, the other theme that's mentioned in this passage, that kind of brackets the whole thing, is the theme of God's wrath. We love that word, don't we? But as we've talked about before, we don't like the word wrath because when we think of wrath, we think of some guy in the middle of a road rage, right? Freaking out on the side of the highway, smashing windows, yelling, screaming, wondering what in the world has happened. That's what we think of when we think of the word wrath. But that's not God's wrath at all. God's wrath, consistent through Scripture, represents God's total opposition to evil. That's God's wrath. God's wrath is God saying, I will not let evil people continue to destroy innocent lives. I will not let awful tyrants go unchecked. I will not ignore bloodthirsty regimes who destroy my people. I won't ignore it. If they do, don't repent, if I send them warning after warning and opportunity after opportunity, if they don't repent, they will find out what it's like to have me as their enemy. That's God's wrath. He promises to bring them down. He's committed to bring down evil and to bring freedom to people. And I, so I just got to tell you, when you really understand what God's wrath is, you can praise him for it. <laughs> we can be very thankful for it. that We have a God that doesn't just ignore evil, but takes it seriously and deals with it. That's God's heart. And as we worship him, we take on more and more of his heart for his world. As we worship God, this God who is just, we find ourselves standing up for people who have been oppressed, who have been abused, advocating for people who have been suffering under oppressive practices, maybe in business, maybe in friendship circles, maybe in the larger culture. We find ourselves giving voice to the voiceless because the heart of God is changing what we see, what we care about. As we worship God, we discover that new things begin to matter to us. People that have been ignored that we didn't even notice before, all of a sudden we realize they need care. The children who've been abused or neglected, we realize we want to be welcoming them into our lives and into our families and into our church. Seniors who've been forgotten need to be included. These are the things that happen in our hearts as we worship God and see Him for who He truly is, including the things He really hates and He's upset about. As we worship God for His justice, for His holiness, we begin to evaluate our own choices in light of what really matters to God. Because as we worship Him and we recognize that He's the one who is holy, He's the one that we submit our lives to, He's the one that we're following. As we worship Him, we find that our own priorities begin to shift. Suddenly, the things we were chasing after, maybe all of our lives, just don't matter anymore. Like, who cares? Really? I spent my whole life chasing that dream? How puny and lame and sick is that? 
I want to chase a dream of that's God's, of seeing lives transformed and families changed and children found and men all of a sudden discovering healing from abuse and changing the patterns that have been, the lives have been locked into and they've been treating others with and women who've been crushed and hurt are all of a sudden discovering they have value and all the changes that Jesus wants to bring, that becomes our heart. And we realize that's the vision I want to pursue. That's the change God wants to make in our lives as we worship Him. As we worship a God who's holy, we find ourselves becoming more holy. Not in that self-righteous, ugly way that we all want to avoid. I mean holy in the sense of, like, we're just so taken up with who God is, we want to see Him and His ways come to be in the world and in the relationships. As we worship God who is just, we and our sense of justice grows. We care about things that He cares about. As we worship the God who is truly good, we find our own hearts are being shaped by His Holy Spirit so that we're more sensitive to things that are good. We're more sensitive to things that are evil. As we worship the God who made us in His image, we become more like Him, more like who He has created us to be. Well, What are your next steps from this? This is a hard passage, I realize. Lots of unanswered questions. I get it. But my closing question for you is this. Are you willing to give God praise for his judgments too? Can you see in the midst of a passage even as ugly as this, that we worship a God who is so great, who is so amazing, that even when we don't understand what's going on, he's worthy of our praise? Even when we aren't sure (laughs) what that next step will look like, he's worthy of our trust. Are we willing to say yes to that? That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for you and your families. It's my prayer for you and your relationships. It's my prayer for us as a corporate church as we we continue to want to see people transformed by Jesus. That we realize in the midst of this, in the midst of the mess, the mess of our own lives, the mess of this valley, the Messes we work through every day. It's a God who loves us and wants to bring justice and goodness and wholeness to our lives. Let's pray. God, this is, this is quite a vision. And uh, in the midst of all of it, we could easily kind of lose track of what's going on. I pray today as we leave, we would leave with a deep sense of how great and good and amazing, and true, and holy, and just, you really are. That even these awful images, we would see them as signs of your commitment to deliver people, of your commitment to freedom, of your unwillingness to let evil have its way, of your commitment to see your world, your creation, people, come to your goal of life, and freedom, and wholeness. We give you praise, God, for being so much greater than we could imagine. More holy, more just, more gracious, more loving. We give you praise for your judgments and ask that today, each one of us, with this vision of you, would take another step in following you. In your name we pray. Amen.